know what I would like to think is that beyond the layer of cash flow and immediate reward for business owners um, and households, that there are young women or graduating women in rural communities who see a more diverse future ahead of them in their local community. That would be an amazing outcome if that, if that could happen. Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Sky Manson. I'm your host for this episode. Today's guest became a household name in Australia, well certainly in rural Australia, almost overnight. Warren woman Grace Brennan is by from the bush. Last year, in desperation, searching to offer those in her communities just the tiniest germ of hope to keep getting through the drought. She started an Instagram page encouraging people in the city to buy their Chrissy Kringle presents from businesses in the bush, in her community. She thought it'd be a nice thing maybe just for her family and maybe her friends to grab hold of. Instead, tens of thousands of people jumped on board with unbridled enthusiasm. What Grace created is a movement, allowing those in the cities and all over an insight into the wonderfulness, the ingenuity and the raw talent that lies beyond. Over the course of a few weeks, she and her team created what governments, corporations and industry groups have been trying to formulate for years, a bridging of the urban-rural divide. But what many of you may not know about Grace is that it seems like many paths in her life have been leading her to this point. Grace Brennan has perhaps unconsciously been working towards this for a long time. This is her story and it starts in the streets of Sydney where her childhood was not dissimilar to that of any country kid. Life in Lane Cove was was so good. <laughs> I say that with a bit of like um, my, my tongue in cheek because I try and tell people who live out here in the country that my life in the suburbs in Sydney was beautiful and they really don't believe me, but it was. I lived um, across the road from a big school, a big boarding school with big grounds and it was on the foreshore of, of the Lanco River. So we would play endlessly um, along the foreshore in caves and climbing rocks and trees and lots of kids in the neighbourhood. Um, and I know it sounds like a nostalgic kind of, you know, it was better back then, but it was just a really fun place to be. And I was the youngest of five siblings and there was a five-year gap between me and the next sister up. So I was looked after a lot by my older siblings, um, but I also had that freedom of, you know, when they were moving on to be a bit... <laughs> Like they were growing up and too cool for playing and I still had all the neighbourhood kids to play with in the afternoon. So it was really fun. Um, and, yeah, I, I went to the local primary school and then went to high school in um, Kirribilli and used to catch the ferry home in the afternoons, which is just the most, like now I think about it sometimes when I'm hanging the washing on the line and the dust, I think about the ferry home from school. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful childhood. It surprises me a little bit, not the not the beauty of it, but just your lifestyle 
in a city seems quite rural rather than metropolitan. This is, this is what I'm trying to, I suppose, break that idea. Because I think what happens is so many country kids go to the city for either boarding school where they're, you know, they're pretty locked up and, um, and tucked away at, or they go in those university years and they live in like inner city Sydney. They might live in, um, you know, Surrey Hills or wherever it is. They're getting, a, a, they're getting that university share house version of life in Sydney. And I think that they think that that is life in Sydney, but um, in Lane Cove with a big backyard and a, place to roam across the road, you know, this big school that we had. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, and, you know, people walk past you and say hello. You meet strangers. There's a lot of reliance on neighbours, just like there are, there is out here. Not quite to the same extent, but there's certainly a sense of community and there's a local village feel up at the shops. It's, I think that's the beauty. Of, I mean, I lived in a beautiful place, you know, or I should say a lovely place that was relatively privileged, so that's not everybody's experience. Um, it was certainly a nice life, and I yeah I try and I try and say that whenever I get the opportunity to. <laughs> oh, I love that. So when you were growing up, what um, as a child and then high school, I suppose what what did you want to become? Did you know? Uh, I mean, the dream was probably an athlete. <laughs> the reality, um, no, I didn't know. I think um, I. I was really active. I played a lot of sport, but I also did have an interest in school and I, you know, kind of didn't go all one way or the other. And what happened was that I met Jack at 14 and I have often thought that subconsciously I was shaping my life from 14. I mean, not from 14, maybe from 18 or something, you know, when I realized that um, it was love, I think that I, probably chose, made decisions around, you know, what I studied and, um, and then once I was studying what I kind of majored in, thinking about what I could do if I lived in the middle of nowhere. So I knew that he probably always would. did a degree in um, international studies and, and leisure management. So I, I spent a year in Santiago in Chile and Jack came over and spent six months with me over there. So we had a bit, and I also spent a year in England after school. So we had a bit of travel time, but I always kind of knew that when we really got serious, it would be a move to Warren. So once I started my study, I kind of thought about what I was particularly interested in is um, community development and um, in a rural context. And so I, I did this essentially a management degree, um, but I, what I was interested in is how to use like the arts and tourism and, and events in a way to build communities and how they can kind of be an avenue for um, community building. So strangely, in a way, that's what we're doing through Bike from the Bush, but it was certainly not a conscious pathway here. Um, it was more about combining my interests with the reality of living in Warren. That's so interesting. So you almost had, like for all the study that you did and all your experiences, this constant evolving case study in Warren that you could like mentally <laughs> apply work to? Yeah, and I, I said it was subconscious, but I know um, in my final year at uni, I did a, a management project and you could choose anything. And I looked at the 2828 project in Galagenbone, which was this incredible community project that started from the ground up and, and kind of regenerated the, the main street and this uh, gorgeous building 
you know, it was volunteer run and they were, it was just, I mean, if anybody wants to find out about a great community project, Google 2828. Um, but yeah, so back then I was interested in, like I interviewed people in Glargonbone about that. And I think about that now thinking I probably did know that I was trying to absorb wisdom and skill from people who had gone before me. There were many women who had married and ended up there and were, you know, basically applying their skills and talent to this really positive community project and having great community impact. So, um, I mean, ultimately Jack had the vocation. He always knew he was going to be a farmer. Um, and I didn't have something that was on par with that. So I had, I, I folded in behind and down this path. So how did it evolve? You went to university and then you were overseas and you traveled and then did you move back to the farm? Yes. Uh, and just quickly, just quickly, Jack came to Santiago and did nothing for six months. Like, can you imagine a farmer doing nothing for six? Because I was studying over there. I was at university over there. So I had this great sense of purpose. I'd get home. He'd be sweeping out this Chilean courtyard. And the, we lived with the Chilean family. And I was like, what is this man who does housework? Like, who have you found? And who is, and is this what everyone is like in Australia? Never so to be seen again. we had this family. <laughs> exactly. Um, he moved home to Wyoming about a year ahead of me and I got a job uh, in Marrickville working at the local council, as I said, looking at kind of how recreation and, and leisure planning can play a role in community development. So we did some really cool things around homeless soccer programs and refugee week, kind of, you know, bringing refugee communities together through soccer and really interesting work. But then after about a year, I decided to move out to Warren and got a job with the Department of Sport and Rec um, on an Indigenous youth engagement project and have moved to that job out here, which was based in the Riverina. So I was travelling from Warren um, and doing some pretty serious kilometres fairly regularly. And it was a real education in living remotely, but trying to have, you know, trying to keep climbing that, that career ladder, but from here. And, in fact, we got flooded fairly soon after I arrived here and I was in this new role and I couldn't actually get to town or to the office. And just, there was all a, a huge education really in um, what it was going to be like. I had all these plans about how life wouldn't change that much when I moved here, but it has to and it does. Oh, that's so interesting. I was just going to ask you that. Like when you arrived at Warren, this country setting, how did your life shift in ways that you didn't expect it to? I think it was a bigger culture shock moving to Warren than I had anticipated it would be, even though, as I said, I think probably I had known I would do this for at least a couple of years before that. Um, but I'd lived overseas and, and yet this change felt so permanent. And it wasn't just a move to the country, but it was also that essentially that decision that, you know, your boyfriend's going to be, your, you know, the, the forever fellow. Um, so I was going through that also. And um, what, it, you know, I tell the story about leaving Lane Cove in my Toyota Corolla and Jack was in his Hilux and we went in convoy because we, we loaded up our cars with all my possessions, which were like trophies. I had no possessions. Um, my tennis trophies from year two or something. Anyway, <laughs> but crying the whole way. Um, and, and wondering why I was crying because I loved the country. Like I loved... Warren, I love, I, I wasn't somebody from the city who didn't want to be in the bush. It was just this overwhelming feeling of um, change. And um, 
and you know every time Jack's Hilux would overtake me I'd stop crying because I didn't want him to know and and I remember arriving he he texted me saying mum and dad want to we weren't moving into his onto his family farm it was a farm down the road um, that his family also owned so but mum and dad want, wanted us to call in to see them on the way and I'd just driven from Sydney and I was emotional and when I got there his dad gave me this big cuddle and like welcomed me to Green Lane which is where the farm was and I remember going no 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 no, 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 I'm not ready. Not ready for this welcome. And then the next morning when I woke up, Jack was gone. Because of course, you know, he'd got up excited to go to work and get stuck in. And I was just this sinking reality of where am I? So alone. Even though I, you know, it, it, it's funny, I went in eyes wide open. Um, but the feeling is something different once you get here. And then I think I kind of simultaneously loved it, but was challenged by it probably for a few years if if not um still are challenged by it and love it at the same time because there is that cultural difference is subtle but it is there and I, there are things that i still don't get you know I, i'm sure i'm kind of misreading some situations sometimes and the anonymity that you have in a city allows you quick conversations and move on whereas here the you know those quick conversations mean a lot more and the relationship building means a lot more jack pulled me up and would say to me, you know, you've got to use their names. If you're speaking to somebody, you must use their name. I'm like, what, what? I mean, I don't even, like, will we ever run into that person again? And also, I don't know their name. He's like, we will run into that person again. You need to learn their name. So, you know, and, um, I mean, this is long-winded, but there were just lots of little things about knowing that I, I needed to ease myself into this community in a way that didn't put, people out and I would often overshare and then realize that that was a bit inappropriate and it's such a strange thing to to be living in a community where everyone's in the same industry all your neighbors are you know in some ways your colleagues because sometimes you work together sometimes you might ultimately be competing for a contract um, there's always money involved like you know there's always money involved so I think that's really unique to the bush and agriculture and I found it hard when, you know, big things going on in our lives, but I knew that possibly we shouldn't be talking about those financial elements um, with my, you know, closest friends locally and learning that from each other and, and what we should share and what we shouldn't share. Um, whereas in the city, I think you just, there's a lot less baggage with that. Yeah, there's a, there was a lot to get used to um, and yet a lot to fall in love with. Also, I've only talked about the challenges enamored with pretty early on. I feel like what you're describing is just the finality of the move for you and that was really final, you're going to be there forever and all the idiosyncrasies that you had to get used to. Are you? Do you still find even yeah. now that there are little local, local idiosyncrasies that, that pop up? Um, I think I know them now. I'm still not, um, yeah, I think I'm not. What I'm aware of now is that I'm not giving my kids, you know, as Jack says, sometimes we're raising city kids in the bush, you know, because I, I just don't know um, what I should be doing to get them engaged in agriculture and in the farm and in the land. And so I don't see things that Jack sees and uh, I can't give that to my kids. So I'm very aware of that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm giving them other things, um, but yeah, it's, it's, still is a um 
a process of absorption, I would say. And see, what I think is that the, the bush has kind of seeped into my bones over, over the last 10 or more years, and I'm sure that that continues to happen over a lifetime. Tell me a little bit about your kids. You've just had your fourth. Coming from a big family, is that what you had always dreamed and hoped to do? I love big families. Yeah, I love big families. No, it wasn't. The, I think it's a real gift to give kids siblings. Um, if you can, and if you, and it's a much easier decision to do that when you live with so much space, a, a cheaper cost of living, essentially. But yeah, I think I'm really pleased that we did decide to have a fourth baby, or, or um, because I, you know, it's it's overwhelming sometimes the thought of getting four kids in the car, but um, it's beautiful. Yeah, I suppose I don't really define myself as like the mum part is just something that I was going to do, but it's not what I draw a huge amount of my identity from. It's just they're the greatest joy and the greatest privilege, but life happens outside of kids for me as well. It does. And I think we can see that through what you've been able to achieve while being pregnant and having your fourth child. Let's talk about Bye From The Bush I think everyone knows the buy from the bush story so well and everyone champions it, you know, just just loves what you've been able to achieve, Grace. But just to touch base on it, where is buy from the bush now in terms of um, how much has it grown in the last 12 months and what are some of the stats on that? I am so bad at the stats question. We've got, I know that we just ticked over to 250,000 followers on Instagram. We've got 50, 000, over 50,000 on the Stay in the Bush Instagram, which is growing pretty well um, in the context of this international lockdown and people exploring their backyard, which is really exciting. Um, we recently partnered with PayPal, which is um, an incredible, I suppose, a, an incredible moment because it's it's been a long time coming in a way. We've been talking with various um, partners and talking about various possibilities for Bike in the Bush, but always with this view to trying to create something more sustainable and and um, and something that would give it infrastructure and allow it to grow um, beyond you know just that flash in the pan drought relief project. So um, signing that partnership deal with with PayPal was a it was just a good feeling that we were we had great support in. PayPal as a partner, they, they just kind of get what we're trying to do. And it means that we've been able to access um, expertise and, and, and resources and skills that I knew that we were lacking. Um, so that's been really positive. And we launched the market online marketplace in the last few weeks, which is the kind of first step towards um, generating that, that self-sustaining revenue for Bike in the Bush and not transitioning it to be a business away from what it was as the social media campaign. But, um, yeah, so so lots happening in terms of, um, I mean, the marketplace is going really, really well. We're overwhelmed, overwhelmingly well. I can't, I can't breathe. I need a minute. Um, so, yeah, it's really... How does it work? That's about... So, um, all, you know, we've got about 170 sellers at the moment and about over 500 who have applied to sell on the marketplace in the last few weeks. Um, and that they're all, you know, from across Australia, they create a selling account. If they've got their own website, you know, we, we can connect with their website. And then basically when people shop through Bike in the Bush, 
our organisation gets a commission and the rest of the portion goes to the seller. So the, the revenue model for us is a commission-based model. And was that tricky for you to arrive at? I heard that um, in a previous interview that you did that you were considering a non-for-profit model and um, I'd love to know more about how you arrived at that decision and how it felt for you. Ultimately, it wasn't difficult to arrive there. I think I took some time um, to, to assess what our best path forward was. Um, but through various conversations and, and consultations, I realised that not-for-profit is actually a really complex process. But more to the point, philosophically, I think that there is commercial appeal in what um, we're doing at Buy From The Bush and what the Bush businesses are producing. And in order to really give it legs, and I think give it the greatest growth potential, I just saw it as a commercial beast and not a not-for-profit. It was kind of, I suppose, that it would be a real safety net to know that it was not-for-profit. I didn't have to think about a business model and I could just somehow earn a wage, you know, through getting, you know, getting philanthropic support or whatever. That would be fantastic. And, and you know, continue this project. So it's a lot scarier to turn it into a business and try and have a real crack. But I just think I talk all the time about Buy From The Bush being about investment and not charity. So it makes sense with our core purpose. So in terms of how we did that, it was through many um, conversations and, as I said, with potential partners and understanding what they could potentially bring to us and what the right model for it is. And the marketplace made sense because I think it's Buy From The Bush is also about discovery and for customers, you know, that, that's what they get from coming to us, they kind of get to discover nice new businesses and, and that one click closer to a purchase, I think, makes a lot of sense in terms of the marketplace. What I want to make sure it's not going forward is just a marketplace. Like I, I want to make sure that Bike in the Bush is a storytelling platform and, and it ultimately creates better visibility for the individual businesses. You know, the marketplace is, is what we've launched and hopefully I can kind of build layer on layer um, to continue our big picture. We'll be back with Grace in just a moment. But now, a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Australian family-owned fashion retailer Bird's Nest. Hatched in the town of Cooma in regional New South Wales, Bird's Nest employs over 140 local birds whose mission it is to solve women's wardrobe problems by providing a unique and personal shopping experience both online and in their store in Cooma. With an inclusive range, above and beyond customer service, nine exclusive labels, personalised style guide and thousands of curated outfits to inspire you, Bird's Nest strives to help women discover styles to feel amazing in, both inside and out. Bird's Nest are giving you $15 off your next order or orders over $70. Simply enter the code GRAZYHER15 at the checkout before December the 31st. With express shipping on all orders and a 365-day fuss-free returns policy, the Bird's Nest girls are your wardrobe wingbirds in waiting. Head to www.birdsnest.com.au. I have a feeling that you really love writing and 
developing content. Tell me a bit about that because I see you pop up in articles all over the place. Yeah, well, that's been like the best um, little side effect of this Buy From The Bush Instagram account is that now people want to listen to my <laughs> to my writing or, you know, I, I get invited to write things every now and again, which I have always had a love affair with, but not necessarily, you know, I, I'm not some literary genius, but I, I like to express an idea through words and especially in a really kind of, in, in my voice and in the accessible kind of casual voice. So any opportunity I can get to do that through this, I will because what I wanted to do with Bike in the Bush is kind of paint a more nuanced picture of life in the bush. And I think you can do that through writing and telling a good little story here and there that, that illustrates a point. Um, I want to get better at it. That's, this is the thing. Um, that's kind of a great joy at the moment is, is honing that skill and improving it. And um, yeah, I, I hope to do more of it actually. But I mean, marketing is in, in ag draft, for example, marketing is something that I naturally migrated towards in, in terms of division of, of um, tasks with Ella, my partner, your sister, I would often move towards the marketing elements and, and that writing aspect. So, yeah, I mean. Can we, let's talk about ag draft. You mentioned it quickly there. So prior to um, buy from the bush, you were working on another startup and that was with my sister, Ella, and it was called ag draft. Um, t- tell me, Number one, a little bit about how that came to be and then what that experience, what kind of tools that gave you to yeah. let buy from the bush fly when the opportunity landed for you. Ella was the finance, uh, business analyst, as you would know, but for everybody else, the business analyst for my husband's company, um, the, the company my husband works for, he doesn't own it. Um, and so they worked together and she was out one day you know, meant to be working with him, but was telling us about this idea she had for an employment platform for agriculture. And I was just so interested in that idea. And we sat in the office and she was kind of telling me about it. And I was telling her what I knew about community building projects, which weirdly has a bit in common because you're trying to, in community building, it's about getting buy-in and in a startup, it's about getting investment and really enjoyed it. And then she she won um, brilliantly. She went off and pitched and, and won the grant and came back to me and asked if I'd work for her, which I did, and then eventually worked for Equity um, in this online platform. And yeah, and and there was it was the it was a very fast education in online, working remotely, running a business, and also this this idea of partnering with somebody and working as a partner, which was you know we I have this great um, moment that I'll take away with me because we. Ella and I were pitching for investment and we went to a meeting and she was our numbers person. <laughs> Ella was our numbers person, as you can imagine, where it was about kind of customer and product. I would often talk and where it was about finance, she would talk. And we had these, we, I think we balanced each other's skills out quite well. And then there was this conversation around, okay, well, if you get investment, what, what role are you both going to play? Um, and so we gave our answer about how we thought we would divide the roles. And because we were going to be two kind of part-time CEOs ultimately because we both had families and um, their face changed and I, and I remember going back to them and saying so I, I, I know that your face changed when we gave that answer can we just circle back to it and can you give us some feedback on you know on what you think and he said well quite frankly we they would want a full-time CEO to, in order to invest and it was just an interesting moment because he had two two people in the room who were going to um, play a CEO role both probably work five days and squeeze them into three days ultimately. 
um, and both bringing a you know a broad skill set to the role. But he was you know it was just a moment, and I didn't quite know what to say. And Ella immediately said, "So could I ask you how many women-led startups you invest in?" <laughs> and it was just this fantastic kind of moment where I thought, "Yeah, bloody oath," because I know what we could deliver, but it was also delivering that around a family, and that means a certain amount of flexibility. And it mean, anyway, it was it was a great moment because it. it for me, um, working with a, a female founder and her kind of allowing me and transitioning me into that startup world gave me a great gift um, and, and taught me a lot. When Ella wasn't available, it allowed me to take the reins and, and run with it where I don't think that would have been possible either in a different context. So it was fabulous. The experience that you have had from from that how has it stood you in get good stead when you have been at the table with some fairly big um hefty companies and corporates big names ministers you name it mm. um i mean i definitely couldn't have done this without my experience with our draft it wouldn't have happened in the same way i didn't ha- and i remember um there's moments in a startup life where it's you have to make tough decisions about whether you can and can't continue. But um, I just knew that I, you know, if I was going to do anything beyond ag draft, what would it be? I, I don't think I could have gone back to the community work because I had this new skill set and I and I was energised by it and I wanted to do something with it. I mean, within a week or two of Buy from the Bush launching, I was having meeting with meetings with digital advertising agencies. Um, because, you know, Facebook had provided us with budget and, and support and I had to talk about ad campaigns and that just would have been absolutely foreign to me had I not gone through our draft and done the accelerator program and, and tested the waters and kind of known what to look for. And also the financial modelling around the startup, which I had no education around, but was able to learn from Ella for some time. And it's such an example of of building blocks and absorbing different skills in different contexts and then applying them into this one role. Does it wig you out that almost, well, a bit over 12 months ago that you were delivering the Australia Day address? <laughs> yeah. It's not 12 months ago, is it? I think it was no. January this year. Yeah. Not it feels quite, like but it feels like a decade. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does weird me out. Yeah, but, but also, not, I mean, this year, nothing is weirding me out. It's just it's like taking one thing after the other and, and going with it. But I, I think it's, I think that will stay with me for the rest of my life. It was a great privilege. Absolutely. How do you reflect on it? Um, as a wonderful moment in time, also this wonderful opportunity to tell my story within the broader context of, of you know, bringing the story of the bush to a, a broader audience and broadening the conversation around bike in the bush, but also around drought and and what it is to live in the country. I think that connection between city and country is only going to be strengthened if we get the opportunity to tell good stories and, and update that um, narrative that has come become, I think, a bit stale in my personal opinion. But it was really incredible, actually, to have that yeah, like, yeah, that's how I reflect on it. One of the things that I love about how Buy From The Bush started was that you frequently referred to the kitchen table in um, 
so many ways. It was the place where you did your work, but also where you came together as a family, but also where you cried, did your worrying. Was that purposeful, the metaphor of the kitchen table? Yes. It was about feeling, because when you, when they called me to ask me to give the Australia Day address, I was at my kitchen table. Um, And then when, you know, I sat down to write it, I was back at the kitchen table. And I think it was, I felt like saying to them, do you know who you've just asked to give this speech? And am I, like, what do you want from me? What am I going to offer you? Um, am I a worthy recipient of this of this um, invitation? Because all I've got is this kind of this kitchen, <laughs> these and the and this and um, and can I you know is that interesting to anybody? So the the and I I mean how many times do you sit around your kitchen table and discuss a big idea or you know discuss what the premier has recently done or a policy, a drought policy, and you, you know, you think, well, that's great. We can have this chat here, but what, what difference does it make? And all of a sudden I was being projected onto a stage with the Premier in front of me and an audience and a national audience where I got to say what I thought and, um, and hope that it would make a difference. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of centering to think about that kitchen table because there are women across the world sitting with, big ideas and big, um, you know, enormous value to offer. They just need the opportunity um, to do that and they need being able to do that. So, I love that. On Life on the Land, this podcast, we often talk about mental health and I want to ask you about that too because, um, you know, part of the push um, for Buy from the Bush and the narrative that came across in that time was concern over farmers um, battling through drought. Can you give a bit more detail to that, like what the kind of conversations that you were hearing about or perhaps having yourself or the red flags that were popping up in communities, what they really looked like? It's always a difficult one to talk about because I feel like I, nobody ever wants to talk on other people's behalf or tell somebody's story on their behalf, you know, and I felt I am really conscious of that, but I felt really conscious of that at the time. I did an interview about mental health, uh, you know, about Buy from the Bush and we talked about mental health and I just, you know, like I would in any conversation, spoke freely. And then the editor sent me the article and said, are you happy for this? Because it was in first person. Are you happy for this to go to print? And I suddenly read it and I thought, now I wonder how this is going to land with other women, other people. Um, Is this a true reflection of what we're going through at the moment? So I sent it to a friend or two and said, is this OTT or is this accurate? Because it's, you know, it's only my opinion, the person. And I chose wisely. I chose people who are not whingers, (laughs) are not prone to drama. And they wrote back and said, no, it's, it's accurate. You know, when you come from the city and you're not used to the challenges of, of agriculture and life on the land, I was conscious of not wanting to over-dramatise what we were living through because maybe people had the resilience that I just didn't have to get through. But in those moments before I started the Instagram account, I had had a few conversations with other people about their concerns around um, their family members and, and their friends and, it, you know, it's about as worse, as bad as it gets. And uh, it was a real threat. And, you know, when 
mental health packages doesn't really describe the reality of the fear of somebody under enormous pressure in the middle of a drought going to the gun cabinet and, and doing something about, you know, what they were feeling. You know, there, there's, there's a huge gap between the rhetoric, the, the political rhetoric, and that lived reality of um, what it feels like to live through a really financially uncertain time, work hard, um, you know, life wasn't very pleasant. All of those, all of those layers of stress amounting to a, um, a very real of suicide and I think in now a year on after coronavirus there'll be an ability to tap into that more universally than just in rural communities and agriculture I think everybody around the world has felt that feeling of uncertainty the decision making paralysis that you have when there's a lot of debt or or you know you don't know if you've got a job next week familial stress that I, I think suddenly people will be able to relate to it. And I, you know, in our, in this prolonged drought, it was years of it. It was, you know, and, and parts of Queensland are probably still suffering that same feeling. So it's very real. It's very difficult to talk about because I think it's um, hard to make, put it in universal terms. But certainly um, at the time that I started Bike from the Bush, I felt that there was nothing to lose by talking about it. And now no one ever could have believed that, 12 months on that the seasons would change um i mean everybody hoped that the drought would break and it hasn't everywhere but it has in many places and the season is just you know glorious in some parts and in in many parts best best ever and that quick turnaround is um so unbelievable Mm. i suppose in terms of buy from the bush it's been a good future proofer, has it, to see that people still, and also so heartening to see that people still want to buy from the bush, even when times are better. I really, see, that's why, I mean, I was quite conscious of not pigeonholing us as drought relief. I think there's much more potential for this to be an avenue for people supporting small Australian-owned businesses not you know tapping into that um, story of origin behind a product there's a there's a global kind of consumer trend towards shopping with purpose we can be the purpose this is a you know when you shop rurally the uh, multiplier effect is enormous and let us tell you that story through bike in the bush so that you know um, that our brand comes you know front of mind when you want to spend your money um, wisely so i hope that um you know, we, we, it's strangely become even more relevant because of bushfire and COVID that there is a stronger appetite than ever to, to support small and support rural businesses. And I hope that that lasts well beyond 2020. And I think it will. And I know that the, the big corporate organisations that have been interested in talking with us, they're doing it because they see long-term potential. It's not a short-term thing for them. So, um, yeah, I, I trust their instincts and I also trust that what the bush is producing is good enough to keep people interested beyond just the drought relief. It's so encouraging. And the saying goes that a rising tide lifts all ships. Who do you think's benefited the most? Um, great question. I think, you know what I would like to think is that beyond the layer of cash flow and immediate reward for business owners um, and households, 
that there are young women or graduating women in rural communities who see a more diverse future ahead of them in their local community. That would be an amazing outcome if that, if that could happen. And how do you think it's changed the family unit to giving more bones behind diversification ventures? Yeah, I think what that does to households is obviously inject cash flow. It, it creates a little bit more of the, like a bit more legitimacy around that female um, or not always female. I, I hate, I hate limiting it to females, but that off farm income and that off farm pursuit um, because I think rural communities will be all the more interesting if they're not so heavily reliant on agriculture, even though I think it's an, an amazing industry. But, you know, the, the more diverse and broad the offering in rural communities, the better. And um, I think that's what, that's what ultimately it does. If it gives legitimacy to those off-farm pursuits, it means that more can be invested in them, they can scale, um, they can employ people, you know, cash flow is then re-injected and... There's real long-term impact on a micro and macro level. You recently um, were interviewed by Mia Freeman for her Lady Startups podcast and you told the story of, um, or could you retell the story because I, I can't remember it exactly, of the, of, the women, of the lady who had planned to do house renos but ended up spending her money on buying a new piece of farm machinery. Yes, yes. Amy from Wattle and Twine in Queensland um, who has the most beautiful business selling gorgeous products um, that are made by rural women. So all sorts of fashion and, and homewares and other, you know, art, I think also. She wrote to me and said, I just wanted to tell you this story. This is not the kitchen that I thought I would buy, you know, that I thought I would renovate with the money earned from um, my business in the last year. But it is certainly a joyful <laughs> a joyful um, reward for all my hard work and, and the help that Bike in the Bush has given me. And it was this picture of a, of a plough, I think, or a grader pulling up um, and, and being unloaded at their farm. And she, you know, I said, oh, do you mind if I share this? She said, no, absolutely not. My husband's getting a lot of mileage out of the fact that, um, you know, I, I'm keeping him in business. But ultimately, you know, through that downturn, um, I imagine, these are my words, but I imagine that the farm wasn't able to, make that investment in that machinery, but her business was able to make the investment in the machinery, which is just a great symbolic reflection of, um, of what can be, you know, of the shift that can happen through life and abortion, through those off-farm pursuits, becoming very real contributors to households and communities and GDP. <laughs> well, let's look just ahead a tiny bit. What's around the corner for Bife and the Bush and do you believe that its footprint can um, extend even further? Yes, I think it can definitely grow. Um, what's around the corner is actually just, con- for me, um, I hope to consolidate this ridiculous fast growth. The marketplace is, we, we really worked hard to get it um, in the market before Christmas. We did a crazy speedy build. I want it to be doing really well. I want it to be a really good product. And so I think there needs to be investment in refining and and um and also getting as many sellers on board as possible and so there's lots of work there um so I'm, I'm conscious of not spreading myself too thin so that is the priority but i suppose longer term ramping up stay in the bush and that offering but also just 
as I said, storytelling, producing really interesting content um, in various formats that people can connect with. I think we've got this audience of people, urban people, and I don't want to waste that. So it's about um, engaging them in, in meaningful ways. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? You've got this engaged audience of urban people and for years and years and years, people have been trying to bridge the divide in a more sort of, I don't know, strategic agricultural lessened kind of way and you're actually really effectively doing it with Buy From The Bush. When do you ever get time to relax and how do you do that? Um, I haven't had time to relax in the last year, I have to be honest. There's not been a lot of time for that. I want to get there. I want to get to that stage and I will, but um, how I do it is, is like I, I can relax really. I mean, I love TV. I love eating, drinking, <laughs> swimming. Part of the joy of living out here is knowing, is never taking the ocean for granted. Like Jack talks about that, that when he was a kid, he'd get to his beach holiday even pulled up they'd be out of the car running down to the beach and diving in it was just after the heat of summer and that ocean you know that salt water kind of healing I think there's something in that I I I will never take a a sea breeze for granted ever again yeah totally I yearn for that feeling of diving into the water there's nothing better than it I dream of it Okay, Grace. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for letting me ask you a million questions and um, (laughs) congratulations on Buy From The Bush and its continued success and growth and growth and growth and for making the time to speak with Life On The Land. Thank you for having me on, Sky. Thanks so much. I could hang on Grace Brennan's every word and I don't think I'm alone. There aren't many people that can articulate life beyond the city as well as she does. I absolutely relished the opportunity to spend an hour speaking with her. So if you've still got some Christmas shopping to do, you can jump on the Buy From The Bush marketplace where there are so many small rural businesses just waiting for the ping of your email. Or you can check out the Grazy Her gift guide, which you can find on the Grazy Her website. Or maybe you can head to Bird's Nest, our sponsor for this episode, birdsnest.com.au. And don't forget to enter the code GRAZYHER15 at the checkout for $15 off your next order for orders over $70. Life on the Land is an independent podcast by Grazy Her. And you can get excited because just in time for the Christmas wind down, the summer edition of the Grazy Her magazine is out now. And that too while your Christmas shopping is another wonderful present idea. Treat yourself to a subscription or for your friend, your mum, your sister, whoever, grazyher.com.au. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.